Uh, John's going to be speaking, so um, I'm going to put your fingers in your Bibles at Philippians 2. That's where he's going, and he's going to start with a video. Let's go. Not only am I confident, not only am I hardworking, but I'm absolutely a great person to be around. I'm not afraid to trample over people to make sure that I'm successful. People do misunderstand me. I know that people enjoy being around my personality. I don't particularly go out for beers with people at work. I'm respected, I wouldn't say particularly liked. In work, it's about results, it's about driving success. In my leisure time, it's about relaxing and ensuring that I'm ready for work and driving that success. People better think twice about coming up to me in a confrontational situation because there's only gonna be one winner. Firstly, I've got the brains and I'm smarter than them. And secondly, my voice will always be heard more than them. People would describe my personality as a born winner. I have a game plan with the other candidates and it's simply to make sure that I don't get fired. If that means cheating, if that means lying, if that means doing something that's going to rub people up the wrong way, I don't care. It's all about winning. Just want to welcome our newest member. Um, So I'm going to talk about humility. Um, (laughs) Part of our Vital Signs series, Healthy Christian, Healthy Church, and humility is one of those things, isn't it, that that we would like to see in others, we'd like to see in the church, and it would be a sign of health. Inevitably, that also means talking about the opposite of humility, which is pride. Um, let me just take a quick poll, a quick straw poll. I wonder if you could stand if you would consider yourself to be humble. <laughs> Brilliant. Well done. You've passed, the first, you've passed the first humility test, so you can be very proud of yourselves. Okay. Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. Very well-known passage. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now I reckon that we would all really quite like to live in a community like the one that Paul describes in verse 2. Paul's the writer of of this letter, where he says... You know, make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love 
being one in spirit, one in purpose. I think we'd all like to live in a community like that, but we don't. Not in our world, not in our neighborhoods, even in the church. Now, don't get me wrong, I love the church. I think the church is spectacular. The church is magnificent, a wonderful community of God's people, but people do fall out. And people, people take umbrage at things, and, and people get disillusioned, and people leave the church, and people get snubbed and insulted, and people get bitter, even in the church. This happens. Now, why is that? Well, it's because fundamentally there's something wrong with the human heart. And Paul tells us what it, what it is. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. It's like he's saying, you want that kind of community? Well, don't do that. You know, and he's talking about pride. You know, pride, those things, pride will stop that community happening. And wherever there's division and disunity in the church, whether it's in this church or any church, you will always find pride right at the heart of that division. And before you start thinking, yes, those, those people who fall out and those people who get upset over silly things, yes, they have a lot of pride in their lives. You know, hopefully you can see the, the irony in that, in that statement. No, the fact is that pride is like a sickness of the heart that actually affects us all to differing extents and in different ways, but it affects us all, or rather it infects us all. So it's not a question of if there is pride in your heart. It is a question of where does that pride exist and how is it being expressed in your life? And there are many different ways it can be expressed. There are, pride has many, many different manifestations, but ultimately pride has one goal, one end objective, and that is self-glorification. That is the goal of pride. The phrase that Paul uses here, which is translated vain conceit, in the NIV, in the King James Version, it's translated vainglory. It's one, one word, vainglory. It's kind of an old-fashioned word, but it, it comes from a Greek word that Paul uses, called, which is kenodoxia, and keno means empty, and doxia means glory, or honor, or respect. So it means empty glory, empty glory. And that, of course, means in the sense that we understand vain conceit, that those things that we boast about to try to big ourselves up, to try to present an inflated impression of ourselves to the world. Well, those things are empty. They're, they're false. They're hollow. It's a mask that we present to the world. It's a facade that we put up. But there's also the sense here of not just empty glory, but the fact that we are glory empty. It means that too. We are glory empty. We are hungry for glory and hungry for honor and respect because you don't feel like you have it. And so, and so you, you need that assurance that you count. Pride comes out of deep insecurity. I don't feel like I count for much, so I need that assurance that I do, that I do count. I need, I need to feel important. I need to feel significant. I need people to, to like me. I need people to praise me. I, I need to, them to think I'm special. You know, that's why, I, that's why for most of us, we find it really quite difficult to do the hidden act of service, the hidden good deed, because we're not very good at keeping it hidden, because we will find ways of slipping it into conversation or just letting others know so that they can see what a good and humble person I am. Where does this hunger for glory come from? Well, I think it's because deep down, really at the very deepest level, we know that we were made to live forever. We know we were made to last. We know we were made to be in the presence of God, to be in his glory and be filled with his glory 
but we know we're dying. We know that we're actually, we're fading. We've lost something because we turned away from God. We lost that glory, and so we seek to get it back in our own strength. We search for that sense of security. We search for that sense of significance. Actually, we can only ever find in God, but we look for it in other things. We look for it in the situations and the people around us. We try to be our own saviour. We try to put ourselves in the place of God. This is the essence of pride. We try to be God, our own God, and we fail to acknowledge our utter dependence on him. And if you think about it, that's crazy, because we are utterly dependent on him for our very lives. When you go to sleep at night, you're completely, you're not in control of anything. It's like handing yourself over to God. You are completely dependent on him. But when we get into pride, we forget that. We try to be our own God. You know, pride, of course, was the the very original sin. Before Adam and Eve, it was the sin that saw Satan cast out of heaven. He wanted to be equal to God. And, of course, pride is at the root, it's at the core of all of our sin. It it weaves through everything. It weaves through all of our sin because sin is, in effect, us saying, no, I'm going to do this my way, not your way. That's what sin is. The American... Uh, 18th century American preacher Jonathan Edwards, he identified four main ways that pride can manifest itself in our lives. And maybe these are helpful tools for us as we, as we consider this to, to kind of think of this in our own lives. The first one was drivenness, drivenness. That, that drive to be on top, to be successful, to be perfect, to be great in the eyes of others. You see it in the video. You know, I will do anything to get to the top. I will trample on people to get to the top. Now, of course, that's not saying that, that hard, hard work isn't good. Of course, hard work is good. There is obviously, we, we are called to work hard. It is possible to be driven in a good way, in a positive, healthy way. Uh, it's possible to be passionate and hardworking and pursuing excellence, maybe out of a love for the thing that you're pursuing. You, so, for example, a competitive athlete who just loves what they do so much, and that's what motivates them to keep going, driving on, getting better and better, getting faster and faster, is is there's a joy in the activity itself. Their competitiveness is driven by that joy, or or maybe it's just that sense of wanting to glorify God with excellence in whatever field or activity you're in. You know, that, that, that is good drivenness. That is a good thing to have. But of course, we've got to bear in mind, in that kind of scenario, you are just as happy when someone else does really well, when someone else breaks the record, when someone else is better than you. But that's not generally how it works, is it? With competitiveness. It's not generally how it works. I think we can find it quite hard sometimes to be genuinely pleased for someone experiencing success in the field in which you want to experience success for yourself. Because generally our competitiveness is not driven so much by joy as by a need to prove ourselves. I remember when I was leading the youth work here a few years back, leading the youth work here, and I know there were, not all the time, you'll be pleased here, but there were times when I would get really disheartened by hearing about the success of somebody else's youth work, somebody else's ministry. You know, on the surface, it's, oh, yeah, that's great. Praise God, he's blessing your youth work. And, and actually, part of me, of course, meant that as well. It's not, I wasn't a complete egomaniac, but, you know, inside, there is, 
a feeling of failure. There's a feeling of disappointment. There's a feeling of, look, I need to up my game. But really, not to glorify God, to glorify myself. To, have, to be seen to have a successful ministry. To be better than the others. See, pride is always there. It's just in the mix. And it still is. It's a constant battle. It's an ever-present battle. Yeah, particularly, particularly when you get the opportunity to stand up here in front of all of you. Who am I seeking to glorify? Am I seeking to glorify myself or am I seeking to glorify God? Pride is always crouching there, ready to pounce. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote this book called Mere Christianity, fantastic book, and he says a lot about pride. And here's one of the things he says. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. Now, I wonder, does any of this resonate with you? Do you, any of what I've been saying, what C.S. Lewis is saying there, does any of this resonate with you? That competitiveness, that drivenness, that actually is rooted in pride. It's rooted in comparing yourself to others, not rooted in joy. And of course, it can manifest itself in much smaller ways too. So, you know, having to be the first to get away at the traffic lights. Or that sense of utter devastation and irritation you feel because you've picked the slower line at the supermarket. I mean, it really bothers me. Or when you're, you're stuck on the M25 in traffic and you must keep ahead of that car in the other lane, otherwise you are failing in your life. <laughs> or what about when you play games with your children? Are you able to lose sometimes? Or, like me, do you see it as your job to keep them eternally humble? (laughs) Drivenness. Drivenness is a sign of pride in our lives. Okay, the second one, scornfulness. Scornfulness. Many of you will know the the, the Peanuts cartoon strip with Charlie Brown in and all the other characters, Peanuts called... um, There's one of these where one of the characters, Linus, is curled up in a chair. He's reading a book quietly just to himself. And Lucy is standing there behind him, looking at him with a funny look on it. She's looking at him strangely. And uh, and she says, it's very strange. It it happens just by looking at you. And Linus says, what what happens? And she says, I can feel a criticism coming on. (laughs) I wonder if you're like that. Do you have a pattern in your life of being critical of others, of always spotting the blemish, any blemish that might be there? Maybe treating others with contempt, mocking them, being sarcastic about them, ridiculing them, either to their face or behind their back. Do you find yourself doing that often, that kind of thing? Because what are you doing when you do that? Well, what you're doing is you're putting people down. Why do we put people down so that we can feel like we're above them? Or maybe you genuinely think that you are above them. The guy on the video, what did he say? He said, people better be careful about coming to me in a confrontational way because there's only going to be one winner because I've got the brains. I've got more brains than them. My voice is going to be heard louder. I'm better than them. There is only one winner. Now, maybe you don't allow your pride to show as brazenly 
as that. But it's a good question. How do you respond when people confront you about something, and particularly if it's someone who you would consider, even if you might not say it out loud, but you would consider to be inferior to you in some way? How do you respond? Do you respond by seeking to put that person in their place, put them down, find the most cutting thing that you could say? Or maybe you don't think that quickly. Maybe you're not that good at thinking on your feet. So you just consume yourself for days afterwards, replaying the scenario in your head and rehearsing what you really should have said in that situation. That would have been really clever. That would have been really cutting. That would have cut him down to size. How dare he criticize me? Scornfulness is a sign of pride in your life. Third one is willfulness. <laughs> you know, as I've been going through these, I've just been ticking these off. In my... <laughs> Maybe I'm saying that to appear humble. I don't know. You know, <laughs> Willfulness. How easy do you find it to admit that you are wrong? How easy do you find it to point out when other people are wrong? A proud person can't admit they're wrong. And when you have someone who's spiritually proud, you have someone who's absolutely sure on every single point of their beliefs, and they cannot see it from another perspective. They cannot take advice. They cannot take correction. They are not teachable. And back to the confrontation thing, how do you respond when someone challenges you about something? Is your knee-jerk reaction to get defensive? Willfulness is another sign of pride. So drivenness, scornfulness, willfulness, and then the final one, and probably the biggest is self-consciousness. Self-consciousness. We tend to spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves and how we come across to others, how others perceive us. And the thing is, when we think of pride, I guess we mainly think of that kind of arrogant pride that we saw there on the video. You know, that, that, that person who self-promotes, who's always bragging, who's always boasting, who's always trying to get people to see just how marvelous they are. But arrogance is not the only form of pride. Because remember, pride is ultimately about insecurity. It's about that hunger for glory, that hunger for honor. And that can manifest itself just as much in an inferiority complex as in someone with a superiority complex. Because if you're constantly down on yourself, if you're, if you're constantly beating yourself up, if you, if you find it difficult to take compliments, because compliments make you feel a bit guilty... If, actually, if you're constantly down on yourself, well then, it is just as self-conscious, it's just as self-absorbed as someone who has a superiority complex. You just have a different way of responding to and processing the deficiencies that you see in yourself. You're just as concerned with what others think of you. Just as concerned as somebody who feels they have to boast all the time and puff themselves up. It's this glory emptiness. It's the same thing. It's this glory emptiness. It's just showing itself in a different way because the focus is all in on you. And whether you think you're God's gift to the world or whether you're caught up in the misery of self-loathing and self-hatred, the effect is the same. The effect is that your world, your universe, just shrinks down and shrinks down and shrinks down until there's only room in it for one person. And that's not a healthy place to be because you end up listening to yourself about yourself. And you know what? You are not the most objective person to give an opinion about yourself. Because we listen to lies. 
about ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book Spiritual Depression, he said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? It might be that you are spending more time listening to lies than speaking the truth over yourself, speaking the truth to yourself, because in a universe of one, you cut, off, you cut yourself off from the source of truth because you can't hear God's voice, and you can't hear anyone else bringing God's voice. Drivenness, scornfulness, willfulness, self-consciousness, they all come back to pride. Pride is our greatest enemy. You know, we think of our enemy, we think of, of Satan, spiritual warfare, nothing compared to pride. He's relatively easy to deal with. Pride, on the other hand. Jonathan Edwards called pride the worst viper that is in the heart, the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts. And Scripture's full of serious warnings about pride. You know, you look through the book of Proverbs, you'll find words like abomination, hate, detestable, destruction. They're all linked to pride. God hates pride. He hates your pride. It is detestable to him. You are not detestable to him, but your pride is. Now, in his grace, he chooses to remove that sin as far from, from him as the east is from the west. But he still hates it. He doesn't forget about it. He still hates it. And we need to identify in our lives and hate it as well. Not hate ourselves, but hate the pride that is in our lives. Humility, on the other hand, humility is something God values greatly. Humility draws God's attention and it attracts his grace. James chapter 4 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It draws his grace. Isaiah 66, this is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And of course, it's what Paul says here in Philippians 2. You want that kind of community? Well, don't do things out of selfish ambition. Don't do things out of vain conceit. Get pride out of the picture. That will destroy it. No, humility. It's all about humility. Humility is the key. In humility, he says, consider others better than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility is opposed to every form of pride. So humility is opposed to that drivenness, that drivenness to be on top, to be successful, to be, to be great in the eyes of others. Humility means I can be content with circumstances. Humility means I can be content with being imperfect. Listen to what one author wrote about the pursuit of greatness. He wrote about it from two, two perspectives. He says, as sinfully and culturally defined, pursuing greatness looks like this. Individuals motivated by self-interest, self-indulgence, and a false sense of self-sufficiency pursue selfish ambition for the purpose of self-glorification. Contrast this with the pursuit of true greatness as biblically defined, serving others for the glory of God. This is the genuine expression of humility. This is true greatness, as the Savior defined it. Humility is opposed to drivenness. Humility is opposed to scornfulness. Because humility means you treat those lower than you or those opposed to you with courtesy and respect and with grace at all times. Humility is opposed to willfulness. Humility invites correction. Humility seeks to learn. And humility is opposed to self-consciousness. Okay, a bit more from C.S. Lewis here. 
He wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters. Some of you may have read it or certainly heard of it. Fantastic book. Really, really clever. Let me just explain it because it needs a bit of explanation. This is written from the perspective of a demon, a devil called Screwtape. And he's writing to his nephew, another demon, to give him advice about how to tempt the human to which he has been assigned. And he's, the, the human is called the patient. So it's from one devil to another devil saying, this is how you need to tempt your, your patient. And listen to what, what it says here. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind, I'm being humble. And almost immediately pride, pride at his own humility, will appear. Pride destroys humility. Pride comes in very easily to replace humility. But listen to what he goes on to say here. It's kind of relevant to what I've just been saying. He says, Abjection and self-hatred can do us demons good if they keep the man concerned with himself. And above all, if self-contempt can be made the starting point for contempt of others. You must therefore conceal from the patient the true end of humility. Let him think of it not as self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion, namely a low opinion of his own talents and character. I think we often think that's what humility is. Oh, I'm not that good at this. I'm not really, I'm not, not, not very good at this. Paul says you need to have humility. Paul didn't say hate yourself or even remotely like it. He says look not only to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. He doesn't say not to have goals or interests or needs. No, he says not... Look not only to your own interests, i.e. you can have your own interests, but look more to the interests of others. Humility is all about what you're looking at. It's where is your focus. And what C.S. Lewis is saying here is that true humility is not about thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. It's not about being self-deprecating and showing false modesty and putting yourself down all the time. It's about not noticing yourself. Because when you are humble... You're, you're not hungry for glory. You're not preoccupied with yourself. You're not preoccupied with your reputation and how you're perceived by others. It's not about worrying how you look and what others are thinking of you or about being down on yourself or being up on yourself. It's simply just not talking and thinking about yourself as much and looking more to the needs of others, preferring the needs of others above your own. Now, of course, let me just put in a caveat. There are, of course, times when you have to look at yourself. There are times when we have to examine ourselves, examine our hearts. That's absolutely right. But true humility is really about self-forgetfulness. Imagine somebody came into the room and said, you know what, my elbows feel amazing. You think, well, that's a slightly strange thing to say. And I guess you would assume that he, the person said it because there was something wrong with their elbows yesterday. You know, because you don't normally notice your elbows unless there's something wrong with them. Well, you come in, my toes feel magnificent. Oh, yeah, my knees, look. My knees, when I sit down, they bend. When I get up, they unbend. They're just working really well. You don't notice these things unless there's something wrong. Now, think about your ego, your sense of self. If your ego is healthy then you're not thinking about it. You don't notice it. You're not constantly looking at yourself, worrying about what people think or what they might be saying about you. But that's not the case, is it? Because we are always thinking about ourselves. Probably our favorite topic. 
we're always thinking about ourselves. We, we do worry about how we look. Our feelings do get hurt. We get insulted. We get snubbed. We do care about what that person thinks of us. And ultimately, we're looking for a verdict from people, from other people. We're looking for that verdict that we count, that we are a somebody, that we are important. And it's because there's something wrong with your ego. It's not healthy. It's hungry for glory and hungry for recognition. And as a result, we're not humble. We get filled with drivenness and scornfulness and willfulness and self-consciousness and self-obsession. So what is the answer? What is the cure to this sickness we have called pride? How do we become humble? Well, you've probably already picked it up. This is tricky, isn't it? Because the problem is you can't work on humility directly. You just can't. You can't make yourself become more humble. It's a byproduct of something else. You see, think about this. If true humility is all about thinking about yourself less, well, then in the last half an hour, we've all become a bit less humble. Right? Because we're thinking about ourselves. You can't work on it directly because it's to do with not thinking about yourself. We heard it in the screw tape letters. Your patience become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? Yeah, get him thinking about it, and that will destroy the humility. It will bring pride in instead. Awareness of humility destroys humility. The most humble person in the world is not aware that they're humble. And don't ever tell them they are. When we try to work on humility, when we try to become more humble, all we're actually working on is the appearance of humility. That's all we can work on, the appearance of humility, the appearance of not being proud. Because as soon as we think we might be becoming more humble, pride comes in and it destroys the humility that is there. So Paul directs us somewhere else. He tells us, no, you're supposed to look at someone else. The way we fix what is most wrong with us is to look at Jesus. It's to take our eyes off ourselves and look at him. To look at him and want him, really want him. Because humility is a byproduct of wanting something else more than to be humble. Because if you want to be humble, it's all still about you. You've got to want him. You've got to want Jesus first and foremost, above every other thing. You've got to want him more than you want to be humble. And Paul shifts the reader's attention in a marvelous way to Jesus with this hymn, this wonderful flowing hymn that, that is here, that he's either, he's either made up or he's quoting from somewhere else about Jesus, about the Son of God, this, the magnificent, glorious, beautiful, majestic Son of God who gave up his place of majesty, who gave up his glory who became humble. He became a servant. He humbled himself, even to the point of dying a criminal's death on the cross. When you consider who it is we're talking about here, doing this, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the glory of heaven, the beautiful Savior, who came as a poor man. He came in a physical body so that he could be beaten and he could be tortured. He made himself, the King of Kings made himself rejectable. And we rejected him. He came in a mortal body and he was killed. It's too much for us to really get our heads round. To fully understand what we're saying here. Just about who he is and what he did. But when we do, when we try, when we contemplate the wonder of the cross. The wonder of what Jesus did. Then we find there is no room for pride. There's no room for any sort of sin. Lloyd-Jones says this, he says, there's only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God 
and especially contemplate the cross. Nothing else can do it. When I see that I am a sinner, that nothing but the cross can save me, I am humbled to the dust. Nothing but the cross can give us this spirit of humility. John Stott says all of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. And it is there, at the foot of the cross, that we shrink to our true size. Fact is, you cannot come to the cross and remain proud. In fact, at the cross, your pride becomes ridiculous, obscene. It's, it's ridiculous next to that. There's no surer way of crushing pride and building humility than contemplating and gazing at the wonder of the cross. This is the only place, the cross is the only place where you can truly, honestly assess yourself in the light of God's holiness and in the light of your own sinfulness and just be who you really are before God and let him be who he really is. And this humility that can only come at the cross, it involves what John Ortberg calls a Copernican revolution of the soul. I love that phrase. It's a Copernican revolution of the soul, the realization that the universe does not revolve around us. Now we see here that because Jesus did this, because he humbled himself, because he made himself nothing, because he did that, therefore God exalted him. The way up is down. He humbled himself. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And do you know what? In due time, God will exalt all of those who humble themselves before him. You know, for all who have been born again by grace through faith, all who have come before God in repentance, in humility, empty-handed, nothing to offer, no bargaining tools here, for all of you, an eternity of glory awaits you will be filled with the glory of God and live in the glory of God for all eternity. That's what awaits. But here's the irony. Here's the paradox. We spend most of our lives trying to fill ourselves with that glory and we end up empty. But Jesus, who had that glory, he truly had glory. He emptied himself of that glory so that we could be eternally full. That's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. We spend our lives looking to the situations and the people around us for that ultimate verdict that we mean something, that we're important, that we are valuable, that we count. And so what we do is we put ourselves on trial every day. But when we do that, we fail to realize, we ignore the fact that Jesus already put himself on trial instead of you. And the verdict is already in. It's in. It's decided. It's done. And the only person whose opinion really counts in the whole of the universe looks at you and he says, I find you to be the most valuable, precious thing, more valuable than any of precious thing you can find on this earth. The verdict is already in. It's been decided. You don't have to perform to get a good verdict. The verdict gives you the performance. The verdict gives you your life. So live out of it. Live out of that verdict. Humility comes at the cross of Christ. So take your eyes off yourself, fix them on him, first thing in the morning, throughout the day, spend moments where you refocus yourself on the cross, and you will find that gratitude starts to flow. 
And you'll find that prayer starts to flow. And you'll find that praise and wonder and adoration and worship start to flow. And these are all things that will help you to keep your eyes off yourself. And humility will grow. Just don't stop to consider how humble you're becoming. And you know what? If the enemy tries to pull that trick on you, just tell him to shut up in the name of Jesus. Don't talk to me. I've got more important people to listen to. I've got a more important person to listen to than you. Get out of my life. Let me finish by reading again the magnificent words of this hymn that Paul writes. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I think there's only one thing that we can say to that, and that is amen. Amen.